0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good evening. Welcome again to Gateway. I want to add my welcome to that, Ivana. Good to see you here today. Hope you've had a good weekend. Last week, Don began a series in which we will be looking at the life of David from shepherd to king. David, who is one of the most fascinating and colorful characters of the whole of Scripture, provides us with insight into how God deals with people and how he uses the circumstances of life and our relationship with others to shape and train us into the people he desires us to be. Don added that, these different stages of development are seen in David's life can be linked with five specific geographical locations in which they occurred. Bethlehem, Gibeah, Cave of Adullam, Hebron, and Zion, or Jerusalem. Last week we looked at David's early experience in Bethlehem and Tonight we're going to look at what happened to him in Gibeah, but they unpacked four aspects of life that God used to shape David, and they were solitude, obscurity, monotony, and reality. So as we turn our attention to when David moved to Saul's court in Gibeah, we see that he experienced some really powerful success, some really powerful encounters with God, and on that, he was became very, very well known. He used to spend six years from the ages of 17 to 23 in Gibeah, but having been originally anointed by Samuel, he returns to the flocks in Bethlehem. But as he did so, we realize that God is working, as it were, in the background. David um, David was gone back to Bethlehem, and we'll unpack that again in a few moments. But this scene is set for us with these few verses. I'll sh- I just want to show us a map first to give us some idea of where we're at um, when we talk about Gibeah and Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It's sometimes good to have some context. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem, Gibeah is north of Jerusalem and between Gibeah and Bethlehem. That's about 20 K, 20 kilometers that he travels back and forth. And so David's life is set by these few verses and it's found in 1 Samuel 16. He says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul "'loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. "'And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, "'Let David remain in my service, "'for he has found favor in my sight. "'And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, "'David took the lyre and played it with his hand. "'So Saul was refreshed, and it was well, "'and the harmful spirit departed from him.'" In order to fully understand this next phase, this next stage of David's journey and what God is about to do, we need to look at what is happening in Saul's life at this time. Saul's life plays a very dramatic backdrop for what God is going to do. And actually, Saul is one of the biggest movers and shakers in David's life, if I can put it like that. And we start off with these very dramatic words, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul had been made king as a result of the people's demands, and now God was saying enough is enough and he removes his hand from him. They he was in position because the children of Israel had badgered, annoyed bemoaned and just grumbled before God that they wanted to be like the nations around them who all had kings. They didn't like the setup that God had given to them and they said, we want a king. We want to be like the surrounding nature, uh, nations. But in so doing, they were throwing out what God had for them. They had a very unique system where what is called theocratic rule, where God spoke through a prophet. The prophet at this time was Samuel, and then Samuel spoke to the people. But they were saying, we don't want that. We want something different. We want to be like everyone else. They had kept on with him. And then we find that God says, go on then, have it your way. Saul had become king, And now God had lifted his hand from him. Sometimes we get what we want from God and he sometimes just gives it to us because we, I think, annoy him so much in this way. How strange it is to see that an all-powerful, almighty God acquiesces to the demands of people when they are clearly not his purpose for them. Sometimes we need to be very careful what we pray for. And this raises a really intriguing pastoral question that we are faced with fairly regularly and it can be quite worrying. We chat with people and the conversation can go one of two ways. First of all it can be, well I'm praying for this situation and if it isn't the right thing, then God will close the door and block it. This way I will know it's his will. Or secondly the conversation can go like this, I know this is the right thing to do and it is God's will for me because door after door has opened up in front of me. These may happen occasionally and these words and this logic may sound spiritual and rational but they are not necessary, necessarily biblical. It must be God's will since the doors have all opened for me in this situation. But Is this actually right or a good way to approach situations? I would suggest that Jonah thought when he had fled from God's will that he went to Joppa and he found a boat that was going completely opposite direction. Wow, this is God's will for me, I can do it. He wasn't in God's will, he was just running away. Sometimes when people set their minds on a course of action, and this happened with the children of Israel, when they set their minds on a course of action and then seek God to confirm it, God will often let them have it. It doesn't mean he's endorsing it, but he may well yield to our willfulness. As you can imagine, there are incredible consequences to these things as there were for the children of Israel. It says in Psalm 106, the English Standard Version, it says, He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease amongst them. Or the message says it like only the message can. He gave them exactly what they asked for, but along with it, they got an empty heart. And so as we continue looking at Paul, it then goes on to say, And an evil spirit troubled him. Many believers are troubled by such passages, and at first glance, this is totally understandable. (laughs) How can God send an evil spirit to anybody? I think it simply means that that it happened with God's permission, that he allowed it. It wasn't his directive will, he didn't say this is gonna happen, and it didn't come from him because he he is not the source of any evil. Sometimes he just lets these things happen to see what will work out in those situations. Was it not God that said to, to Job, uh, to Satan, have you not considered my servant Job? Sometimes God in circumstances allows these things to happen. The troubling <laughs> affected Saul mainly in two ways, moodiness and with a physicality, a physical problem. And it seemed to manifest itself in the form of breathing difficulties. Josephus, the, Ju- the Jewish historian, writes about this incident and says, Strange and demonic disorders came upon him and brought him such suffocation as were ready to choke him. Actually, when we read later when David played his harp for the king, scripture records for us that Saul was refreshed. The Hebrew word literally uh, translated there means to breathe freely. He had some breathing problems that was caused by this demonic activity. So this is a very brief but necessary glance at Saul which helps set the scene for David in Gibeah. The anointing on his life is gone as we said and he is demonically oppressed. So he is moody, erratic, volatile, unpredictable, full of jealousy and enmity. And it is these things that God uses to shape the next stage of Daniel's, uh, David's life. So David moves to Gibeah in order to help to soothe the king's physical and mental health issues. And we read in 1 Samuel 16 that he proves to be an instant hit. He is incredibly successful. Everybody likes him wherever he goes. His fan club seems to get bigger and better as it goes along. The people in the entire palace liked him. He found favor to begin with with Saul's eyes. The nation took him to their heart. And in, really it is quite easy to understand why because in the next few chapters that we haven't got time to read of, <coughs> 16, 17, 18, 19, the following things happen to him that grant him such, um, such fame. He becomes the king's private musician. He becomes the king's armor bearer, a position given on bravery, loyalty, and outstanding skill. He killed Goliath and becomes a national hero. He leads Saul's army and has a string of military successes. God's favor was upon him and he conducted himself wisely. In this second season of life, David has his first taste of earthly success and it is going to be significant. What he probably did not know was that in his early success, God was gonna shape him and test him in such a way that would help him become the king that we all know and admire. It is truly impactful to recognize, and the quote sums it up so well, No other king went through this training regime and no other king was as good as David. God put him through this training scheme for a very, very good reason, that he was to be probably the most outstanding king that Israel was ever to have. And he went through this and he learned the lessons and he becomes the king of all kings in that sense. So I'm gonna quickly look this evening at three things that God uses in these Gibeah years to take David from a shepherd to a king. And I believe that he still uses such tools, still uses such plans, still uses such situations to to save, to shape many of us, especially as we live in the first world. I'll come back to that later on. He uses three things, success, servanthood and insecurities. Success, servanthood, and insecurities. First of all, success. It is amazing how quickly success affects the human heart, whether it be at work, sport, fame, or financially. Success or its acquisition can have a strange effect on people. In our politically correct world, we, we have this idea that we 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 don't want our children to lose because we don't want them to be upset we don't want our children to think they've come second or third you know sometimes i think that children need to fail sometimes they need to succeed because it is when they succeed that you learn a lot about a character it is sometimes those situations that character is more revealed through success than very often through failure as a as a rugby ref especially at the end of a rugby match. I can tell you more about a person's or a young man or a parent's character by the way they respond to success than they do to failure. I, I told this story this morning, and I'll probably give more detail tonight, but I was reffing, well, I don't know, a couple of months ago, maybe six weeks ago, and it was between two local schools, and it was a playoff match or it was a final. I, got, I don't really know what it was, but it was a really... Crunch, crucial match. And, um, and there's the, a the, the lot of people there and the schools were out watching it. And I just need to tell you for 30 seconds, a rule of rugby for you to understand what I'm about to say. In rugby, if the ball is kicked out, you can take a quick throw in and start play again if someone doesn't touch the ball. Do you understand? So if the ball goes out, no one else touches it. A player from the team that has the throw can go take it and restart play. This is what was happening uh, in the game. The, the team that was on the ascendancy uh, had a throw into them. being had been kicked out. But a dad from the team that was losing and were vulnerable to this other team attacking them and probably scoring, a dad on the sideline went over to the ball and touched it. making that non-playable. So the dad made sure that the team that his son was playing against didn't have the advantage. Can I tell you something? I was furious. I knew that he, what he had done, and he knew that I would seen him do it. And so therefore, and for about 10 seconds in my mind, I was thinking, do I say anything here? Do I upset everybody here or upset half the people? The success or the the allure of success is incredibly powerful. It has a dynamic and a dimension to it that failure doesn't have. Success reveals character. It teaches us a lot about ourselves. I dread to think what that father's idea of success is for his son as he's growing up in these teenage years, but he was giving an incredible example of really what not to do. And you see, success, is quite a powerful um, force. Sometimes people go crazy and they swoon with intoxicating pride upon receiving even the smallest amount of earthly honor. Blessings test us differently than adversity, but I believe more severely. Before success comes, we imagine we we will be faithful to handle it and it will not affect us, but more often than not, this is not the case. Proverbs tells us these words, the purity of silver and gold is tested by putting them in the fire. The purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. The more successful you are, the more character matters. Keith Webb writes, success both challenges and reveals character and if it is not handled well, graciously and with humility, it can affect our hearts and the way that we live. The history of the human race tells us that generally when people enjoy success, they do not become more devout. In fact, the opposite is true. Rather, they lose their tenderness, their passion, and often concern and and love for the things of God. And sometimes it leads to a loss of intimacy because we have something else that has gripped our heart. This is why in Deuteronomy 8 verses 11 to 14, God says, make sure you don't forget your God, your God by not keeping his commandments, his rules and regulations that I command you today. Make sure that when you eat and are satisfied, build pleasant houses and settle in, see your herds and flocks flourish and more and more money come in. Watch your standard of living going up and up. Make sure you don't become so full of yourself and your things that you forget God, your God. David was a different sort. When he was promoted in Gibeah, when he knew success, he continued to live from the heart that God had started to develop in his Bethlehem days, faithful in the small things. He did not ignore the things that he had gone before, and what was his secret? Well, he was not on a quest for importance or for success because he already had them because he knew that he was loved by God. He knew that God would take care of him. He knew that God was his provider. He knew that God was all that he wanted. And whilst he had learned those lessons in Bethlehem, it is in Gibeah that God really tests them over it. Psalm 30 says these following verses. Oh Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. <laughs> he was declaring that even in times of success, he will not be moved. God uses this incredible su- success, and if I can put it like this, it doesn't go to his head. He still knows that it's God who is his provider, it is still God who is the source of his life. It is God who has given the success and he can take it away. But in this time, he, as it were, really was tested by the situation. Secondly, servanthood. I said earlier how quickly success or newfound importance affects the human heart. But this often finds us saying, well, we are now unable to tend sheep anymore. I am too busy for that. Seemingly more important things quickly replace that good old-fashioned serving and servanthood. I don't think that as followers of Christ there is anything more important than service for him, serving others and serving the body of Christ because surely we follow a Savior and a Lord whose plumb line for life, everything he did was measured up against these words, not to be served, but to serve. Mark 8, 35 in the Living Bible says, if you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. You see, David got this truth. He knew, although he had success, that he still was called to be a servant. He knew these words in the, and he lived out this concept Even although these words spoken by Christ came something like a thousand years later, he knew the importance that whatever was going on in his life that he was called to be a servant of God. God wired the universe so that happiness and fulfillment does not come from status or salary or sex or success. Fulfillment comes from service and serving. God designed us to be at our best when we are giving a life away. Why? Because he wants us to become like him. It's all about loving him and following him and being transformed into his image. Let's read those words again. If you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who... Throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. When David was enjoying success in this season, he continued to live out of the overflow of that heart which he had again learned in Bethlehem and he wasn't gonna allow success to change anything. He learned what it was to be a servant and when he was tested with success, he continued to serve. We read in 1 Samuel 17 that although he had now moved to Gibeah, he went back and forth between Saul's court in Gibeah and the hillsides of Bethlehem. He used to travel those 20 kilometers, taking supplies to his brothers who were in the army and then returning to take care of the sheep. This is the man who was becoming super famous. This is after he had killed Goliath. This is after he is known by everybody in the nation, but he still goes, I'm gonna serve my brothers. I'm gonna go take them food. I'm gonna make sure that they're okay. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna serve in my father's house, and he does that. Although he was beginning to taste the favor and esteem of man, he continued to be faithful in the insignificant tasks. We need to be careful that we don't let the whispers of success draw us away from what we know to be right and what God requires of us. You see, servanthood, and we get these from David's, implies dignity, servanthood implies attentiveness, persistence, faithfulness, loyalty, and humility. Going back to the points that Don raised last week, servants don't grandstand, they don't showboat, they don't try to impress, they don't try to save their own image, or protect their own reputation, or grab the limelight, they know their job. They know their limitations and they do so and go about their work and their Christian walk quietly and consistently. Something you learn about servants, and these all come out of David's time in Gibeah. First of all, servants cannot control or t- cannot control anyone or anything. Oh, that's the servants learn that they cannot control anyone or everything and they shouldn't try. David couldn't change Saul, Saul was against him, but he knew that God was in control, and he believed in that, and he relied upon that, and he knew that God had his best at heart. Servants can't change or fix people. Servants cannot concern themselves with who gets the credit. David could have said, I'm gonna make a play to be king here. I am getting so popular. People are singing about me in the streets and we'll come to that in a couple of moments. People think I am wonderful. If I made a play to become king, I reckon I could overthrow Saul. So servants don't do that. Servants cannot concern themselves with who gets the credit. They are to do what God has called them to do and he was there to serve the king. And servants cannot minister in their own strength. David, especially in the story of David and Goliath, he knew that he couldn't take the king's armor. He knew that he had to go in the, in the strength of the Lord and the, the battle was the Lord's. And he knew that he couldn't minister on his own. And you see, David gets all this and he learns and relearns the principle of servanthood and serving and they become his ethos. We've heard a lot as a... As a the faith community over the last couple of months about ethos, things that we automatically do, things that we just are natural to us, things that we don't even have to think about. And I think it's fair to say that David had an ethos of serving that was absolutely second to none. <coughs> Thirdly, insecurities. One of the obvious tools that God used to shape David from shepherd to king was the enmity and the hostility that Saul developed towards him. And it was probably his biggest and most ongoing challenge. See, God's favor was upon David and this started to rile and anger Saul and all of his insecurities, shortcomings, and character faults quickly rose to the surface. The Bible records for us, as I said earlier, that Saul literally heard people singing David's praises and this triggered incredible insecurities. Oh, they like him more than me. He is more popular than me. And all his insecurities comes to the surface and he, as it were, he attacks David with his insecurities. When God is shaping us as men and women of God, he often does this by exposing us to opposites or simply exposes us to the very thing he wishes to rid us of. By this, I mean, if he is seeking to develop deep peace in who we are, he will often send turmoil and people who will bring turmoil into our orbit. If, we are seeking, if he is seeking to produce patience, he will use frustration and people who frustrate us in order to develop this characteristic in our life. If he is seeking to teach us and develop generosity, he will bring challenge to our time, to our finance, and our largeness of heart. If he is trying to teach us self-control in these situations, he will often use people and circumstances that if we don't wrestle with self-control, will get the better of us. And God is using this very much of the opposites that he sees in the life of Saul, <laughs> the challenge and to shape David. To shape David into a godly king who would be a blessing to his own nation and to the people of God for generations to come, God takes this enmity and this hostility of Saul and he says, I'm gonna teach you so much that in years to come you will become one of the greatest kings we ever had. You see, David's experience with this hostility was one of the most powerful shaping things in his life. I would like to say it's the same for us too today, that God uses people to shape us, he uses situations to shape us, and often it is hard. See, much of David's spirituality, the way he prayed, the way he lived, can be accounted for only by understanding he experienced such enmity and how well he responded to it. So too for us for it is how we respond to the challenges around us, whether it be people that annoy us or irritate us, or we do, or just don't get on with, or perhaps the circumstances and situations that we face and struggle on a daily basis. They will either bend us out of shape and distort us, or we can allow God to use them and transform us into what he wants us to be like. We can either have our noses put out of joint by people, or we can develop in what God has for us. It's a difficult choice we have to make. <laughs> I have really enjoyed the opportunity to spend some time back looking at David once again and the things that he has used, that God has used to transform him, that God has used to shape him, have really just challenged me again as an individual. But one of the things that hugely impacted me as I've read these verses again and again is this. In this startling contrast between Saul and David, between maturity and immaturity, see when Saul is faced with his own sin, his own shortcomings and his own security insecurity, his reaction is to offer excuses, blame others and not repent. Let's say those three again. His default position was to offer excuses, blame others, and not repent. We see this time and time again. His insecurities caused him to live life badly and get life so wrong. Poor decision followed by poor decision. Instead of owning his stuff, he sought to deflect it, and David suffered as as a consequence of this deflection. Friends, I think we need to ask ourselves some questions. If we find ourselves being always defensive, always blaming other people, and saying, well, it's not really my fault. Because when you come and compare that with how David faced his sin, his shortcomings, and his, his insecurities, it is quite refreshing and quite wonderful. He repents, and he says, Lord, I have sinned against you. Contrast the two contrast the two, such a different response from the shepherd boy and he didn't allow the insecurities of Saul to rob him of his identity in God. I find it so refreshing when we as Christ followers own our own stuff rather than wriggle out or try and blame the mess on someone else. We take responsibility for what we have done and when we do that it is far, far more easy for healing and restoration to flow. When we address the issue of insecurities, one of the biggest subjects we have to learn is that we have to address the issue of comparison. The curse that many of us live under is that of comparison and for many of us it is crippling and ruining our lives. I'd like to suggest that this is one of the reasons Saul struggled with David and therefore caused him to respond and react in the way that he did and tried eventually to try and kill him. You know, if, if we look at this at a very natural level, you can understand a little bit of Saul's insecurity if he is like that. He had reasons to be concerned. David was young. He was handsome. He was musically gifted. He was a proven warrior, and he was extremely popular, whereas Saul was old, tormented, moody, not so popular, and no longer seen as the answer to the nation's problems as he once was. The question begs to be asked, and we know the uh, answer in advance, in whom or in what was his identity as the old king? And you know, we know that for Saul, it wasn't in Yahweh, and David's security was in Yahweh. The truth is, comparison will kill us if we engage in this currency as opposed to the currency that tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and special to God. I find the comparison ruins more minds and thought lives than arguably anything else. And forgive me <coughs> for saying this, I didn't get stoned this morning so I can, I'll risk it again. You know, it's a bigger issue for women than it is for men. That's just the reality. You know the old joke, the old tale of two guys going to a, to, uh, to a party and two Ladies go to a party, two guys go to a party and they are dressed exactly the same and they just look at each other and they said, you look good, you got your clothes exactly right. Two ladies go to the same party and they are dressed exactly the same and they just fall to pieces because, oh, she looks better than me or something like that. Not that I have ever heard this myself. In many surveys over the last 10 years or so, when the question is asked, what is the biggest social struggle you face, responses will all include comparison. Sure, comparison isn't something new, but the issue with comparison is that oftentimes it will lead us to a place where we care more about becoming the person we are envying than the best version of ourselves which is God's desire. We live in a society where comparison is the fuel of our social media accounts. We strive to have more likes than anything else. We look at the fun things that our friends are doing or at least it looks fun when, with all their smiles and filters and we become envious and desire a life like that. But we've got no idea really what's going on. I said earlier that <laughs> I believe this is a big issue for women and bigger than it is for men. And to this end, in the recent weeks and months, I have been drawn to the writings of a Christian blogger by the name of Anne Voskamp. And she writes a lot about this subject and is really, really good. And if you get a chance to go to her blogs, really good. It, it's literally a can can't even spell it myself, Voskamp, V-O-S-K-A-M-P. And she says these words and she writes to her ladies on the blogs. Girls, comparison is a thug that robs your joy, but it's even more than that. Comparison makes you a thug who beats down somebody or your soul. Scales always lie. They don't make a scale that ever told the truth about value, about worth, about significance. And the main thing about measuring sticks, girl, measuring sticks try to rank rank some people as big and some people as small, but we aren't sizes, we are souls. There are no better people or worse people. There are only God made souls. Isn't that good stuff? Really, really good stuff. David suffered because of Saul's insecurity. Saul suffered and made his life hell because he compared himself with David and the comparison killed him. And then his enmity and his hostility rose. So how do we land this in these last couple of moments for us as followers of Christ as we explore the life of David and before we move on to the cave of Adullam next week? What are the lessons that perhaps need to be learned or perhaps reminded of? Perhaps you're in Gibeah right now. Life is good for you, going well, and all seems set fair. Well, enjoy it. Make the most of it be full of praise, be full of thanksgiving. If it's success, promotion, wealth, social standing, living the dream, well just say thank you Jesus and enjoy it. It's God's goodness to us. If we've forgotten to serve and the call upon our life to serve has just lost its impact, it's lost its meaning to us, then we need to go back and rediscover it and say, Lord, I am not gonna be too busy to serve. I'm not gonna be too busy not to give my life away. And so, just three things that we can wrap up from David. First of all, be like David, act and behave wisely. It says that he acted well, he acted wisely. And as we have seen, success can bring the worst out of people. Don't let that be us. Don't be the type of person people don't want to be around and are blessed when we walk out of the room. To walk wisely is so crucial for us as followers of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 5, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of the time. And be like David, let's behave graciously. Grace in society, in our culture, in fact all around us is a rare commodity, especially when it is perceived that we have been wronged. I came across the following about the need for gracious people, and it says this, gracious people are kind and their behavior is characterized by tact, and we should all strive to have this on our CV. I just thought that was really, really good. Musicians, please can you come and join me. Thirdly, (laughs) be like David. Let's undergird our life with worship. It's seen throughout his life. And some of the psalms that we sing or some of the songs that we read come out of these years that we call the Gibeah years. And we need to undergird our life with worship. David excelled as a servant, as a shepherd, as a musician, soldier, king, poet. Yet the great characteristic that formed the foundation for all these abilities was his consistent worship of Yahweh. David was a worshiper long before he knew success, before he became a public figure or part of the king's household. It was something that he learned and he never ever forgot. He made the decision to be a worshiper before everything and anything else in his life. I'd like to suggest that this is the only thing that kept him sometimes in the darkest days when Saul desired and did his best to kill him. I think that David would agree with Rick Warren when he wrote these words, your profound intimate experiences of worship will likely be in your darkest day when your heart is broken, when you feel abandoned, and when you are out of options, when the pain is great, and you return to God alone. I think that would probably be a great summary too of the the life of David. We're finished. Next week we're gonna come, and Don's gonna be talking about the next stage of his life, the cave, But my prayer is that we will just take the lessons of David, of this incredible man, flawed man, passionate man, just an incredible king, and that we will allow God to speak to us through him and make those adjustments and speak to us about whatever he wants to do so that we, as it were, will be a reflection of God to the world around us. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.